as we come to read our scripture together today, uh, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 12, and we'll be reading the first 17 verses. These are the words of God. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, brother. Let us pray together as we come to God's Word today. Father God, we love Your Word and we love these narrative portions of Your Word. We love to read the history of what You have done on behalf of Your people. For Father, it gives us such confidence as Your people to trust You and to put our hope and our confidence in You alone. Father, You are a good God. You are the Almighty God. And we would pray this morning as we come believing in You that You would help our unbelief, Father, that You would strengthen our faith where it tends to be weak and that You would use the power of Your Word to do it. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and may the meditations of our hearts on this Lord's Day be pleasing in Your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I was um, going to seminary back in the late 1990s, Wendy and I 
both had jobs working at restaurants, waiting tables in the town where we lived. She worked at Applebee's and I worked at Chili's. And the two restaurants were right around the corner from one another and we had one car, so most often she'd drop me off at work and then she'd go to work. She'd get off a little later than I did. And when I got off work, I would just walk over to Applebee's and wait for her to get off work and then we would go home together. Well, one day as I was walking up to the entrance of Applebee's, I heard the sound of a woman screaming. And I looked over to see that there was a couple standing outside of their car, which was parked right in front of the restaurant, and they were having a very heated argument. And the argument had started to turn physical. And the guy, who was a big guy, like Joe's height and almost, if you laid Joe on his side, right? Big guy. And the, the girl was tiny. Little thing. And this guy was starting to grab her and shake her and shove her and use his size and his strength against her. And he was, a, he was a lot bigger than her. He was a lot bigger than me. But the sight of him doing that, the sight of him pushing her around and the reality that this thing was escalating between them triggered this this instinct in me kind of viscerally to do something about it. And so I ran over to the front of their car. Again, it it was parked right in front of the windows of the restaurant. And I yelled at this guy to get his hands off of her and to leave her alone. And he looks back at me and he yells at me to mind my own business. And he had a couple other words that he inserted in the middle there. But it's the Lord's Day and I can't say those words. So I, in all my wisdom, took two steps forward towards him and told him that assaulting her was my business. And so he took his hands off of her and then he took two steps towards me and looked at me like this. And at that moment I realized, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. And then... He kind of looked up and over the top of me and turned around and walked away. And I turned around and looked behind me and saw that all of the men that Wendy worked with and all of the cooks from the kitchen and every other male human being that had been seated in that restaurant was watching this through the window and they all came outside and they all were standing at my back like this. (laughs) Yeah, and I realized when you're not alone, you're not so much in trouble. Now, don't you love the words of Psalm 46 that we read together responsively at the beginning of the service today? God, the Almighty God, is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. He is with us, no matter what trouble we're going through, no matter what ominous threat is staring down at us, that is bigger than us, that is more powerful than us, that is overwhelming to us, bigger than it by an infinite measure, is the God who is with us and is a very present help in our 
trouble. And Christians, how often do we go through times of trouble without realizing that? Without calling to mind, without embracing and relying on the fact, on the reality, that the almighty, sovereign, omnipresent God of creation is present with us in the trouble and that He has our back. He doesn't need to come running because he's on, there is no place where He is not. It's one thing to feel the pressure and the weight of the troubles that are inevitable and that are sort of a necessary part of life in this world. We're going to feel that pressure. It's one thing to feel it. It's one thing to feel the weight and go, it's heavy, it's weighing me down. It's exhausting. And it's another thing entirely to go through those weighty troubles without a sense of the reality that the God who made us, the God who spared not His only begotten Son to redeem us, is with us as a very present, very strong help and refuge in whatever times of trouble we find ourselves. And so how needlessly sometimes we agonize and despair and and panic instead of telling ourselves what is real and true. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, because it's real, because he's here, we will not fear even if the earth gives way. Even if all of the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Even if all of the sea's waters start to roar and foam and the mountains tremble at the swelling of the sea, even if, even if all of the rivets start popping out of the created order, and it's all coming apart at the seams, we won't fear because God is with us, and He's bigger than it all. Even if the nations rage, which they do, and the kingdoms totter, which they will, God utters His voice and the earth melts, but... but The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Now today, in Acts chapter 12, Luke records this awesome story of when Peter was in big trouble, and God was with him, and Peter found great peace and great deliverance at the hand of his God. There's a lot here for us to learn from, to glean as we come to walk by faith and not by sight in this world. And so what I want to do this morning is just look here at verses 1 through 17, which Aidan read for us a second ago, Acts chapter 12, and receive the wisdom that God has for us in His Word together today. So verse 1 says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, the setting here is shifting back away from the events that took place way up, you remember, in the city of Antioch. We learned about all of that a few weeks ago from chapter 11. Now, the the focus is shifting all the way back down 300 miles to the south to Jerusalem, where King Herod was, and to uh, an instance of persecution and martyrdom that Peter found himself caught up in the middle of. 
Now, there are several, when you read the name Herod in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are several Herods, several men who were known by that name, and it's not always the same one as you read the New Testament. The one that we're reading about here in chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa, and he is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the king of Judea, the Roman king over the province of Judea during the time that Jesus was born. It was Herod the Great who was the one, when he heard that the wise men had come from the east and they were looking for Jesus, Herod felt threatened that this messianic king had been born. And so he reacted by trying to kill Jesus in his infancy by having all of the male children in the region killed. And this now is more than 35 years later. This this is that guy's grandson, Herod Agrippa. And he too was an absolute instrument of evil as he persecuted and killed the people of God and shook his fist in defiance of the king of all kings. And so verse 2 said that Herod killed James, the brother of John, by the sword. James and John, you remember from your readings through the New Testament Gospels, James and John were the sons of Zebedee, and they were known, remember, as the sons of thunder. These were the two brothers who were big and strong and bold and outspoken and leaders. Next to, next to Peter, even now, after the resurrection of Christ and in the early years of the growth of the church, these guys would have been looked at as leaders among the apostles. And so see Herod wanting to do something about the growing threat of the Christian church throughout his region. He wanted to make examples of the leaders of that movement in order to discourage people from following after them, from becoming Christians. He wanted to strike fear into the hearts of the people by killing their their leaders. And so he put James to the sword. Now, Herod Agrippa had a grandmother who was Jewish, which technically qualified him. He's a Roman citizen. He's an official of Rome. But technically, he had Jewish blood in his veins, and so, so he technically could call himself a Jew, and he did. He was eager to call himself a Jew, not because he had any kind of regard for the Jewish people or for their scriptures or for their religion or for their God. This was all political. See, at this time, Emperor Claudius was ruling the Roman Empire, and Claudius wanted more than anything to maintain the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He didn't want anything internally destabilizing the empire because there was enough going on outside, right, with the barbarians pressing in on them and the armies all out there trying to secure the borders and keep the thing from being collapsed from the outside. He didn't want it being perforated from the inside by a lack of peace. He wanted to maintain the peace. And in the area of Judea, There was a lot of unrest, and that was the area over which Herod Agrippa was king. 
And a lot of the unrest in Judea had to do with the fact that, that the Christians were multiplying at an incredible rate in that region and that the Jewish people despised them and were trying their best to keep Christianity from spreading and, and, and from growing all throughout Judea. So Herod Agrippa, since he had a little bit of Jewish blood in his veins, aligned himself, see, with the Jews against the church, against the growing Christian community, because he thought that if he could eliminate the Christians, then he could appease the Jews. He could win their favor, and that would help him advance all of his, his political ambitions. And so Herod had James, the brother of John, executed. And Luke specifically tells us that it was by the sword that Herod had James killed, and that's that's a significant detail because according to Jewish law, someone was put to death by the sword for a specific crime, for a specific reason. Specifically, you were put to death by the sword if you were guilty of violating the law that is spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Listen, you don't need to turn. A couple verses, Deuteronomy 13 verse 12. The law of God in the Old Testament was this. If you, hear of, if you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell in, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, pagan gods, false gods, idols. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it's true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword. So, in the Old Testament, Yahweh, God, the one God, the true God, the only God, said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall only worship me. And if you worship other idols, there's going to be a price to pay. And if anybody in your city tempts people and leads them astray into that idolatry and false worship, they will be put to the sword along with the rest of the city. Put to the sword. So see here, Herod, and remember, he's motivated politically, not religiously, he wanted to kill some of the most prominent Christians in a way that the Jewish people would approve of. And he found a way, I imagine he probably had a little help from some of the Pharisees, but he found a way by way of this law in their scriptures that forbid anyone to lead people into serving other gods, which of course the Christians were serving Jesus and the Jews rejected him for who he is. He makes himself out to be God. They called him a blasphemer when he walked the earth because they reject him as the God who he is. Now, forget the fact that Herod himself was an, an official of the Roman Empire and that the Romans believed in, in, in all kinds of other gods, all kinds of false gods. They had a whole pantheon of them and they believed that the emperor himself was the chief god of the empire. So here Herod's being pretty hypocritical, right? Latching on to this Old Testament Jewish law 
and charging the apostles and James specifically with leading people into following after a false god by, by preaching the message of Jesus Christ. And of course, I don't need to tell you, the irony here could not be richer as King Herod tries to curry the favor of the Jews by setting himself up not just against the followers of Jesus, but against Jesus himself, who isn't just the actual king of the Jews, but is actually the king of all kings, including Herod. And Herod does this by claiming that the followers of Jesus are following after a false god, when in reality, Jesus is not only the king of kings, he is the one true God of the Old Testament. He's the one who wrote Deuteronomy chapter 13. He's the one who said, you shall have no other gods before me. He is Yahweh in human flesh. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Herod had absolutely no idea who he was messing with and what would happen if he messed with him. But we're going to have to get to that next week. Here, he has shaken his fist at God and defied the Most High God and put James to the sword, charging the apostles with inciting people to idolatry. And when he did that, the Jews could not have been more pleased. They were thrilled that James, the son of thunder, is dead. So now Herod, emboldened, sets his sight on the biggest fish he can find. Peter himself, the leader of the apostles, the leader of this Christian movement. Verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews to have killed James, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. So ask yourself, why did he arrest Peter instead of just killing him straight away like he did with James? Well, it's because God is sovereign and none of this happened by accident. It's because God was sovereignly orchestrating this entire deal in order to massively glorify himself in it by causing a a massive deliverance and then a massive downfall for Herod. Verse 3 says, Peter was arrested during the days of unleavened bread. In other words, during the feast of the Passover. And Jewish custom said no executions could happen until after the Passover was finished. So killing Peter would have to wait. So Herod had him arrested till after the Passover, intending, verse 4 said, to, to drag him publicly before all of the people and have him killed once the holiday was over. And look at how serious Herod was about making sure that Peter stayed in prison until the day of his public execution. Verse 4 says that Herod set four squads of soldiers to guard over Peter. A squad was a group of four soldiers. So he's got 16 trained Roman soldiers devoted to guarding one guy. Herod was not taking any chances. Peter had been arrested before, and yet he's still out there walking around and causing trouble. 
Now, there had been all kinds of reports, too, of unexplained miracles swirling around these apostles and this guy, Peter. And Herod wasn't going to take any chances. And the one who Peter was preaching about and proclaiming as the true Messiah, Jesus, he had been arrested, too, remember, and put to death, even crucified, buried in a tomb, and now, still, years later, nobody knew where he was. They couldn't find him. Now, Herod probably thought, like a lot of people did in their unbelief, that the reason why they couldn't ever find the body of Jesus was not because Jesus was raised from the dead like he was, but was because the disciples of Jesus had somehow snuck into his tomb and taken his body and hidden it or buried it somewhere else, and then just claimed that he had been raised. Herod probably suspected that the, that the disciples of Jesus or the disciples of, of, of Peter, the, the, the friends of Peter, might very well just try to do the same thing again and spring Peter out of prison. And there were a lot of disciples now, right? Hundreds, thousands, a lot of these Christians swarming around and they may just all try to band together and, and rush the prison and bust Peter out. So, Herod's not taking any chances. He's got 16 heavily armed, professionally trained Roman guards watching Peter day and night. And Peter's behind bars, and Peter's chained up behind bars, literally chained one arm each to a a guard inside this prison. By, By any earthly measure, Peter's in a lot of trouble. Peter's in a tight spot. Peter is is utterly trapped, and things don't look hopeful for Peter. Now, what about the other disciples there in Jerusalem? What about the church? What were they doing in the wake of the martyrdom of James and the arrest and the imminent execution now of Peter, which just seems inconceivable to them that this could happen? What are they doing? Well, what they weren't doing was what Herod was afraid they might be doing. They weren't planning an insurrection. They weren't planning a prison break. They weren't sitting around plotting to try to find a way to fix this problem that was facing them in their own way, and their own wisdom, and in their own strength. And also, they weren't fretting, were they? They weren't freaking out. I'm sure they were terrified. I'm sure they felt the weight of this trouble. I'm I'm sure they felt anxiety. James had just been murdered. Peter was in prison. There doesn't seem to be any hope that he's going to escape the same treatment that James got. I'm sure their hearts are are full of the the feelings of sorrow and the loss of James and the, the fearful anxiety that they must have had for Peter. So what do you do? What do you do when you feel feelings like that? What do you do when you feel fearful and anxious? Well, the human fleshly instinct and impulse is usually to try to do one of two things. Fix it or fret. Find a way to do something in your own strength, according to your own wisdom, according to your own way, to make this problem go away. Or 
panic, fret, focus all of your energy on the problem itself and let fear and anxiety and despair consume you and define you and and oftentimes paralyze you. And both of those are a matter of focus, right? Trying to fix everything all the time focuses on me. My strength. What can I do to make this problem go away? And then fretting, on the other hand, freaking out, focuses on the problem and its power over me. And here in Acts 12, the church didn't do either of those things. They didn't focus on themselves and what they might be able to do to make the problem go away or how they were feeling about the problem. And they didn't put all of their focus on the problem itself either and how bad it was and how much worse it was almost certainly going to become. Instead, they put their focus on the God who is an ever-present help in trouble. And they put the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 3 into action. Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. Don't look at you. Don't look at the problem so much. Look at Him and He will make straight your paths. Don't focus on you. Don't focus on your ability. Don't focus on your strength. Don't focus on your understanding. And don't get mired down being focused too much on the problem, which is bigger and more powerful than you. Instead, trust in the Lord with all your heart. The Lord, Yahweh, the self-existing, all-powerful, all-wise God, the one without beginning, the one without end. The one who is omnipresent. There is nowhere that he is not. The one who is omniscient. There is nothing that he does not know. The one who is, in fact, omnipotent. There is no power in the universe that can compare with his divine power. Focus on him. All of the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing before Him, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand. No one can say to Him, what have you done? Daniel chapter 4. Focus on Him. I love Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 14. As God is proclaiming to, to Judah that there is coming trouble for them. God is speaking in that chapter about His purpose and His plan after the trouble comes, after the Assyrians come, after the Babylonians come. His purpose to avenge Israel by judging the wicked nations that have persecuted them and that would persecute them in the future. Again, specifically the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Listen, He says in Isaiah 14, I will, I will, Rise up against them, against those wicked nations, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord who commands an innumerable host of heavenly angels. I will cut off from Babylon both their name and their remnant, their descendants and their posterity. There won't be anybody left to remember even 
when I get done with them, God says. And Babylon, when Isaiah wrote those words, Babylon hadn't even done anything to Israel yet. But the Lord of hosts knew that they would, and He knew what He would do about it. I love this. Here's what He says in verse 23 of Isaiah 14 about what He's going to do to Babylon. I will make it a possession of the hedgehog, He says. And I will sweep it with the broom of my destruction. Right? The most powerful empire in history. And when God gets done sweeping it, it's just going to be a patch of dirt where hedgehogs live. I will break the back of the Assyrian in my land. I will trample them underfoot, God says. And in those days, there were no more powerful empires or armies on the earth than the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And there were no bigger problems in the world than if the Assyrians and the Babylonians set their sights on you. Unless the Lord of hosts set his sights on them. And then as powerful and menacing as those empires and armies were, what could they do about it if God was against them and had purposed to destroy them? So verse 26 of Isaiah 14, God says, This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, for the Lord of hosts has purposed this, and who can annul it? And the hand of the Lord is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Seriously. Who? If the sovereign Lord God Almighty purposes something, who could ever possibly annul what He has purposed? If the Almighty God stretches out His hand, who could ever possibly push it back? Do you think that all of the combined power in the world, even across all of history, put together could ever out-arm wrestle the Almighty God? Of course not. And it's easy to say, of course not. When we're all sitting here in church together and singing His praises and thinking about His greatness that is revealed in all of these verses. But how about when you're not sitting here? where everything that we say and sing and do is focused on Him? How about when you're out there in the world and things are hard and you're in trouble and whatever is causing the trouble is what you're focused on? How about then? Does it seem like sometimes that the problem is bigger than the Lord? Is the problem, whatever it is, commanding your attention more than He is? Is your focus on the problem tempting you not just to feel anxiety, but to start to be anxious and borrow trouble and fret and panic and assume the worst? Or trying in your own strength and according to your own understanding to fix it, to say, Hold on, God, I'll be back on Sunday, but right now i got to march off here in the world in my own strength and, and fix everything and overcome everything. I mean, listen, the world is full of trouble. And it is hard, it is weighty, it is overwhelming. The question is not whether or not you're going to feel the weight. 
The question is whether or not the weight is going to feel like too much. It is too much. And that's, see, that's the point. Because the real question is, when you feel that weight, when it is too hard, what do you do? Do you pretend like you're big enough and strong enough to handle it on your own? Do you feel and act as if it's so big and so bad that there is no hope for you? Well, maybe the problem that we have sometimes is that we're so focused on ourselves, so focused on our problems, that we're not focused on the one who is with us and our very present help in trouble. So, Peter's been arrested. There's no busting him out. There's every earthly reason to believe that in the morning he'll be dragged out and publicly executed. So, what do his closest friends do? What does the church do? Well, they're all gathered together, it seems, at Mary's house. And she must have had a big house for them all to be there together. And it was a big house apparently because it even has a gate to get into the property. And only wealthy people with big properties had gates. And all the Christians are in there all night. What are they doing? Now they're weeping and they're wailing and they're freaking out and they're panicking. And they're packing their bags and getting ready to hightail it out of town before daybreak so they don't get killed too. And before they go, they're drowning all their sorrows and miseries and booze because it just feels so hopeless. And so what else are we going to do? They're doing all the things, right, that people can tend to do when they're in trouble and when the troubles and their own feelings are their focus. That is not what the church in Jerusalem is doing. Because they're not focused first and foremost on the trouble or on themselves. They're They've turned away from themselves and away from the trouble and they've put their focus onto the Lord of hosts. The one who's bigger than the problem. The one who's present with them in the problem. And so they spend the whole night together in an extended prayer meeting. Now I love what Thomas Watson says about prayer. And this is a quote where Thomas Watson is talking about that story in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus and the disciples are in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and a big massive storm breaks out. Jesus is asleep in the back. The disciples are freaking out. They're panicking. They're trying to fix it. They're trying to save the boat. And then Jesus calmed that storm because He was with them in the boat. He was with them in the trouble. Listen to what Watson says. He says, prayer does to the heart as Christ did to the sea. When it was tempestuous, he rebuked the wind and there was a great calm. And so when our passions are stirred up and the will is apt to mutiny against God, prayer makes a gracious calm in the soul. Isn't that great? I love that. Here's my takeaway from that. Prayer isn't just a power that I can wield 
to calm the storms of life's trouble and all of the tempestuous circumstances that are going on in the world around me. Instead, prayer is a way for me to tap into the power of the Most High God so that His power can calm the real storm which is in my soul. I love that. The problem isn't what's going on out there. The problem is what's going on in here. And that's what prayer's for. Not just to calm all the circumstances down, to calm me down. This has been my experience since I've been a child of God. The real storms of this life are not the troubles that come and the trials and the hard circumstances. The real storms are the storms of my soul. Dark clouds in my soul. Heavy rains. Suffocating atmosphere. Not, not mainly outside of me. Mainly inside. And Jesus, didn't we learn last week? Jesus is in me and I am And I am, by His grace, I am in Him. And that is far better even than Him just being in the boat with me. When He was in the boat, He calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, which was rocking the boat. But when He is in me, when I am in Him, and when I am prayerfully fixed on Him, He is, by His almighty power as the great I Am, calming the real storm that tends to rage in my soul, in my heart. Prayer makes a gracious calm in the soul. So the Jerusalem church, with its leader in chains, sentenced to die in the morning in the midst of the storms around them, and because of the anxious, overwhelming storm within them, prayed earnestly, all night long. Makes us wonder, right, why, why Christians aren't gathering more often to prayer? Is it because there's no problems? There's no troubles in this world? There's no storms in our souls? Or maybe it's because there are and we're just doing the wrong things about them. Well, meanwhile... Churches at Mary's house praying all night in the prison where Peter was trapped, as trapped as a person could ever possibly be in this world. 16 guards surrounding him and keeping vigilant watch over him. He's behind bars, literally. He's chained to two of those guards, each arm literally shackled to a separate guard. There's no, if it depends on Peter, there's no hope of escape here, right? This is it, right? There's no way out of this one. This time when the rooster crows with the dawn, it's Peter who's getting killed. Now when I'm facing tough circumstances, and I've never faced anything like that, like what Peter was facing that day, but when I face tough circumstances, I can tend to be a little like Asaph in Psalm 77, where he says, you hold my eyelids open at night and I am so troubled I can't even speak. Right? You ever feel like that when you're going through stressful, difficult times? You can't sleep. I mean, you're exhausted, but it feels like somebody is literally just holding your eyelids open all night long. Well, look, here's Peter chained up to two guards, 14 more guards all around him, knowing that the next sunrise that he sees is likely to be his last. And what's he doing? 
verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, right? He's, the night's gone, the, the sun's about to rise. On that very night, Peter was sleeping. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. He wasn't, he wasn't fretting. He wasn't up all night trying to negotiate his release. Listen, guys, I can make it worth your while if you just slip me out the back. And he's not sitting there feeling sorry for himself. He was fast asleep. He had learned to trust the power of the Almighty God even as much as his Lord had in that boat on the Sea of Galilee. Because Peter wasn't focused on Peter. Peter wasn't focused on the problem. His mind, his heart, his soul. And you know Peter, right? Peter's not your laid-back, easy-going guy by nature. <laughs> Peter was prone to swinging swords and freaking out. But his mind, his heart, his soul are at rest here, at peace here, because the Lord has granted a gracious calm to his soul. And so probably just laying there, chained to these guards and praying and praying, he just falls asleep. What do you do at night when you're worried and when you're troubled and when you can't sleep? It's okay to be in that place. It's just what you do. What do you do? Do you lie there for hours thinking about whatever it is that's troubling you? How long, how long does it take you to pull out your Bible and start filling your mind with God's Word instead of all of the anxious thoughts? How long do you let your soul be in turmoil within you before you tell it to take its place? Psalm 42.5 Why are you cast down, O my soul? What's your problem? Why are you in turmoil within me? Settle down, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him who is my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore what do I do? I remember Him who by day commands His steadfast love and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And that's what we've got to do, right? When we're in trouble, we've got to tell our troubled souls the truth. And fix our minds on remembering the goodness and the salvation and the steadfast love of God. We've got to frame up our troubles, big and ominous as they are, against the backdrop of God's infinite awesomeness and faithfulness. We've got to remember all of the ways that God blesses us and has blessed us and will bless us because He promised to bless us. Remember all the ways that He's already been there for you. All the ways that He's always been faithful to you. Asaph, in the middle of his anguished, sleepless night, says in Psalm 77.10, here's what I do. I appeal to the long years of the right hand of the Most High God. Instead of obsessing about the trouble, I'm going to think about the long years that the right hand of the Most High God has rescued and delivered and helped and provided for and cared for and comforted me and all of His people for generations. You know, parents, how sometimes uh, your child is, is scared at night and they're in there in the dark and they're crying in their room. And they want their parents just to come in and just be there for a little bit. 
sing them a song maybe, tell them a story maybe, to get their minds off of all the things that are scaring them. And then, in the middle of the song or in the middle of the story, they fall asleep with these peaceful thoughts in their heads. Well, see, it's not, it's not just for kids. That's what we all need to do so often. Why in the world, if you're anxious at night, do we not sleep with Bibles by our bedsides? So that we can wake up, or if we're already awake, and tell ourselves the stories recorded in God's Word of all the ways in which He's been good and faithful to His people and never failed. Tell your soul about all the times when God heard your prayers and answered. Tell your soul about all the times when He was there for you and never let you down. Appeal to the long years of the right hand of the Most High and draw near to Him. Pray to Him. Cast your cares on Him. Because He's infinitely bigger and better than all your cares. And then rest in Him. I'm sure that's what Peter was doing because he was asleep. He wasn't fretting. He was simply resting in the goodness of his God whose mercies are new every morning. And then while Peter was sleeping, here's what happened. And here the passage preaches itself. An angel of the Lord appeared in his cell, stood right next to him. The cell was filled with glorious heavenly light. And the angel, Peter's so asleep, the angel who shows up in all this glorious light, he's got to poke Peter in the side. Hey, wake up! (laughs) Tells Peter to get dressed, grab your cloak, put it over yourself and follow me. Peter wakes up, he's probably half drowsy, half asleep. Thought he was dreaming. And we're not told at all what was going on with the 16 guards, by the way, right? Did they just not notice? Maybe it was kept from them divinely somehow? Were they put to sleep so that they didn't pay any attention? I mean, the the shackles literally fell off of Peter's hands and were clanging around on the ground. And he walked right past the guards, right up to the gate that led out of the prison and into the city, and this big, heavy metal gate opens on its own. No one noticed a thing. And then, verse 10, the angel leads Peter out into the city and then leaves him there. Peter comes to his senses, finds himself outside of the prison in the city free, and recognizes that God has marvelously delivered him. Now he's still got some wisdom here. I don't want to just hang out out here in case somebody finds me and throws me back in prison. So he makes his way to Mary's house. He figures correctly that that's where everyone would be gathered and they were all there praying throughout the night. So he gets to the gate outside of Mary's house and he starts pounding on the door, anxious to get inside off of the street. And this precious little servant girl named Rhoda hears him out there and recognizes his voice. And instead of running and opening the gate, she gets so excited that she runs inside and tells everybody, hey, Peter's out at the gate. Poor Peter, right? Hey, wait, come back. Open the gate. Let me in. (laughs) But bless her little soul, she was so excited that she she couldn't think what to do except go tell everybody. But when she told everyone that he was out there banging on the gate, they told her, verse 15, that she was out of her mind. She's crazy, they said. There's no way Peter's out there. When they kept on, or when she kept on insisting that it was true, 
They started to believe her, but they didn't believe Peter was alive. It must be his angel. They've already killed him, and his, his spirit has come to the gate. They'd seen him arrested. They'd seen how many guards were appointed over him. There's no way he got out of there. Even though they'd been praying all night for God to deliver him. <laughs> how often, Christians, when we do pray... Because of the troubles and the trials, instead of trying to fix them, instead of fretting and freaking out, when we do pray, how often do we not actually expect for God to answer our prayers? I mean, we can't know the mind and the will of God. And we don't dictate by prayer what He is to do for us. He doesn't always reveal to us whether He's going to heal the sick person that we're praying for or change the hard circumstances that are burdening us or, or give us the answers that we're looking for. But what he does reveal to us is that his steadfast love never ceases, is that his mercies never end, is that his faithfulness is great. And as a father shows compassion on his children, so God has compassion for us who fear him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened to him. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, is going to give him a stone? In other words, don't you trust that God loves you as much as you love your child? Which one of you, if your child asks for a fish, is going to give him a serpent that could kill him? In other words, trust the heart of God. You may not know the eternal will of God, but you can know the revealed heart of God. If then you who are sinful know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Why aren't you asking? And when you ask, why aren't you expecting Him to be good? He's good. Don't you trust that he cares? Jesus told a parable in Luke 18 about a widow who was being treated unjustly and so she goes to a judge in order to get justice against her persecutor and the judge is a godless man. He's an uncaring judge. Keeps ignoring her. Go away. Leave me alone. So she keeps on going. And going and going and going and pleading with him and asking for help and asking for justice until finally he goes, oh, fine! And gives her what she asks for. Not because he cared, but just to get her to stop pestering him. And see, the whole parable, or the whole point of the parable, of course, is not that God is uncaring like that judge. The point of the parable is, look, if pestering the uncaring judge got an answer imagine what might happen if we regularly cried out to God who is caring who is kind who is good and who loves to bless his people with good things why don't we do it and when he answers why are we surprised I can't believe he answered my prayer really he's good when the trials like sea billers are rolling, are you, are you fixing? Are you fretting? 
Or are you drawing near to the God who is good and casting your cares on the one who cares for you? And when you do draw near and cry out to God in prayer, are you expecting Him to be the good and kind and merciful God who He says He is? Are you expecting that He's going to grant your prayers because He cares for you? And when He does, are you surprised? Like, like, like I can't believe He actually did it. Which translated means, I can't believe He actually cares. That's where our faith falters, isn't it? Of course, he's able to do whatever he wants. I just, I just wonder if he cares enough about me to do it. Which is just the unbelief of self-pity. In Mark chapter 9, a man brought his poor son to Jesus and the boy had suffered from an evil spirit since he was young who made him unable to speak and caused him to have seizures and, 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 and convulsions all of his life. And the man said to Jesus, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if? What do you mean if? All things are possible for the one who believes. And that man cried out to Jesus, Lord, I do believe. Please help my unbelief. And that is the most humble, honest thing a man can say to the God of this universe. I trust you, but not perfectly. I need even help from you for the imperfection of my trust. I know that you can, but my faith is weak and sometimes it's hard for me to believe that you care. Really? It's shameful for me when I doubt God's care after He's done so much for me. Not just here temporally, but eternally, right? Strengthen my faith. Make me to trust you more. Jesus healed that boy in Mark 9. Jesus sent an angel to make the chains fall off of Peter's hands and then lead him out of prison. You know what? There's no guarantee that He's always going to give you exactly what you ask Him for temporally in this world. What is guaranteed is that He is good. That He loves you. That He cares for you more than you can possibly conceive of. He's the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask for and even all that you could ever think to ask for. So sometimes, see, He doesn't even give us what we ask for because He loves us enough to give us something better. Something that we actually truly need more. And when that something is a trial that is meant to be used for our good and to build our endurance and our character and our hope and to help us to learn to patiently wait for the Lord and trust in His ways and not lean on our understanding and and bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness, we can truly give Him thanks that He didn't give us what we asked for. But something eternally better. God's unchanging goodness and unceasing steadfast love and great faithfulness and unending mercies are what are guaranteed by the God who He is. And here's how we know that this is the God who He is. Not just because we've prayed to Him before and He's heard us and answered us and done good things for us. He has. There are countless blessings that He has poured out on us and pours out on us every single day. Even the ones that He gives us when we're too busy 
fretting and fussing and fixing to come to him in prayer and fix our minds on his goodness. And he just goes, oh, you're panicking down there. Let me just fix it for you. Because he's so good. He's so kind. But see, ultimately, even beyond all of that, it comes down to this. We know that God's goodness and love and faithfulness and mercy are guaranteed not just because when we've asked, we've received, and not just because He's given even when we've neglected to ask, but ultimately because just like He delivered Peter from Peter's chains and Peter's bondage, Jesus has delivered us from an eternally greater bondage to sin and to death. And he did it when we weren't even asking for it. When we weren't even seeking him. And Peter was asleep when Jesus delivered him, right? We weren't just asleep. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. We were in an infinitely worse jam than Peter was. We were in a far more hopeless situation than Peter was when Jesus caused the dungeon of our spiritual death to flame with light and the chains of our sin and unbelief fell off and our hearts were free and we rose and went forth and followed Him. When His amazing, undeserved, unmerited, unconditional love found us in spite of us. And in Romans 8 and verse 32, Paul simply asks, simply but profoundly, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? How can you even ask if God cares given what He's done for you in Christ Jesus? He's given His only begotten Son to die for us. Do we really wonder if He cares enough for us to hear and to answer our prayers? Thomas Manton said, God is essentially good. Good according to His essence. He is not only good, He is goodness itself. By contrast, the creature's good is an added quality. But in God, it is His essence. And He is infinitely good. The creature's good is is but a drop But in God there is an infinite ocean and gathering together of goodness. And He is eternally and He is immutably, unchangeably good. For He cannot be less good than He is. And there can be no addition made to Him and no subtraction from Him. Go ahead and think about that one all afternoon. He cannot be less good than He is. How can you doubt that he's good? The Lord is good. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. It's just what's true. Doesn't matter what you feel. Tell 
truth to your troubled soul. And as one who has been delivered by God from the worst, most helpless bondage imaginable, know the goodness of your God and trust His infinite, essential, unchangeable goodness and cast your cares upon Him and taste and see His sovereign goodness in every aspect of your life. Let's pray together and then we will take up this hymn and sing praises about His amazing love. Our God and our Father, we simply say with that man in Mark chapter 9, that father who cared so much for his son but wondered truly whether or not you cared for him. We see ourselves in that man. And we say, Lord, we do believe. And we need help with our unbelief. We need help to trust you more. We need help to rest in You when our souls are restless. We need help to turn to You in whom we are, in whom we exist, in whom we live, and who lives in us so that You can give a gracious calm to the storms of our souls. And so, Father, will You help our unbelief? Will You teach us to trust You? Will you teach us to rest in you? Will you teach us to draw near to you in unceasing prayer and cast our cares upon you? And will you use the truth of the goodness of the God who you are and especially what you have done for us eternally in Christ Jesus to awaken this trust, to build this trust, to strengthen this trust and to lead us to walk by faith in you more and more. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Turn to page 5 in your bulletins. And we're going to sing loud as you can. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? Absolutely. He died for you because of His amazing love. Let's sing to Him today.